Amy Cardinal Christensen is a fire research scientist with the Canadian Forest Service. Her research on Indigenous fire stewardship, Indigenous wildland firefighters, and wildfire evacuations is important to any sort of comprehensive view of the shockingly intense wildfires that have burned 4 million hectares so far this year in Canada, and that produced almost 60 million tons of CO2 in May. She's also the co-host of the Invaluable Good Fire podcast, which I strongly recommend. She and Matthew Kristoff talk to luminaries on the contemporary reality of fire's extreme intensity and destructiveness, and what can be done to restore a balanced relationship with fire. She's produced an abundance of work in this field, but I'll just highlight two co-authored books, First Nations Wildfire Evacuations and Blazing the Trail, Celebrating Indigenous Fire Stewardship. Amy is drawing attention to realities and precarities that are too often ignored in the colonial state of Canada. She makes it clear that the impacts of today's fire are generational, where First Nations and Métis communities are, quote, not going to be able to participate in their cultural activities on their land base for a long time. While that is criminal, the uneven impacts of wildfires that have been supercharged by greenhouse gases and global heating, the irony is that future-oriented forms of indigenous fire stewardship have historically been outlawed in Canada and the US and Australia. Amy helps us understand the history and motivations behind that policing of cultural fire. Her research is tough for a number of reasons, and not least because she says, even though she's a Métis woman from Treaty 8 territory, it's hard to earn the sort of trust necessary to learn fully how indigenous peoples have preserved their cultural fire practices. In her words, for indigenous nations, there's a long history of distrust around fire with outside people and outside agencies. It's also becoming difficult to talk about the practice of prescribed burning because of the ways that climate change is altering the atmosphere and making conditions more volatile. Nonetheless, the things she has learned are eye-opening and progressive, reaching down to the roots of the problem of conflagration and problematizing things like land use planning and building design from a deeply decolonial perspective. You are uh, featured in Rachel Sarah's book, Climate Champions, uh, 15 Women Fighting for Your Future. And in that book, you talk about how, uh, for you, fire was a part of life, growing up in a forest that needed fire. You also mentioned that your extended family are involved in firefighting, including your husband, who's a wildland firefighter. You know, we're facing a situation where more than 4 million hectares have been burned by wildfires across Canada so far in 2023. That's like 20 times the annual average. So I just wanted to start by asking you how you and your family have been coping with the severity of this year's wildfires and how you're kind of processing the sheer scale of this coast to coast climate event. Yeah, thanks Scott for asking. It's been a, yeah, a worrying year. I'll say that. Um, I know like it, I talk about, you know, growing up with fire, but I think what's important to stress is that it wasn't this type of fire that we're seeing right now. Um, you know, when I grew up, we did have some out of control wildfire events in uh, Northern Alberta, but it wasn't, as you said, on this scale where there's just been so many communities impacted um, and yeah, just so much land that's been devastated. And I think What's important to point out is that, you know, we hear a lot of talking about natural fires and, you know, that fire is an important part of the landscape. But I think that what we're seeing right now um, through uh, my ter family's territory is not natural. 
like um, the, the fires are just burning so hot and so intensely from fire exclusion, you know, forest management practices, and then climate change on top of it, that they're really devastating forests. And so, um, you know, for many communities that are having these fires right now burn near them, uh, the, the impacts of them will be generational, right? Where they're not able to participate in cultural activities on their land base for a long time. And I mean, in that context, I wanted to kind of uh, bring up this remarkable essay that you wrote with uh, Tara McGee and Elise Gatti uh, on wildfire uh, for the Routledge Handbook of Environmental Hazards in Society. I learned a lot from that piece. And in it, you note that, um, you know, wildfires burn around 400 million hectares worldwide each year, which is stunning. And you say that you know, wildfires still have ecological and other benefits, uh, but they can, of course, have devastating impacts when they affect people in their communities. You know, I, I realize you've written about it extensively, but I do think a lot of people lack knowledge about this. So I was hoping you could just give us a sense of how, like, the high temperatures produced by low-intensity wildfires are in some ways necessary from an ecological perspective. Yeah, sure. So the boreal forests where I grew up in, in Canada, um, it's called Treaty 8 territory. Uh, so in northern Alberta, the, the forest there needs fire to be healthy. So fire is just a natural part of, of the, the forest. And so um, one thing, you know, that, that's really common is like jack pine and, and other um, cone producing trees, like they need the fire to be able to like um, heat up those cones to basically pop them open so that the seeds can come out and that they can, you know, make healthy new younger trees. So in Canada, I mean, before colonization, what used to happen is that, you know, we had lightning fires, but they were allowed to run on the landscape. So, you know, a tree would be struck or something in like the hotter um, summer months when it was drier. Um, and then, yeah, produce an out of control wildfire that would kind of, you know, take off it, like what we're seeing now, but not it's not the same because at the same time we are having those fires naturally on the landscape a lot more than we're seeing now. And there's been lots of studies coming out that are looking at, you know, tree ring frequency um, and, and fire. So basically how often a tree would be burned by a fire and still be able to live um, through that. And so uh, you know, so we had those lightning fires occur uh, occurring a lot, but at the same time, when we look at the frequency of those tree rings, and then look also at stories that our elders have about fire on the landscape, we see that Indigenous people were also burning a lot on the landscape with these low intensity uh, fires. And so an important thing to point out about that is that the time to burn was incredibly important for those fires. And so they would occur in early spring or late fall when fire was much more easier to control. And so people could put fire on the landscape where they wanted it, where it would have benefit and where they could control it. And so we kind of call that like a, a good fire, a fire that, that's helpful on the land. And so by having those fires on the landscape too, what it would do was it would produce like um, a patchwork or mosaic in the forest. So in the boreal forest, that was really important because you'd be able to keep meadows open um, for animals and for other things. But meadows are also great when there's a lightning caused fire coming across because the fire, when it hits a meadow, will turn from a crown fire, like up in the canopy, um, down to a surface fire on the ground. And so for firefighters, that's easier to put out. 
you know, if it's raining or something like that as well, it's easier for the rain to put out those fires. And so indigenous people would try to produce like a mosaic around where they live. So they would have all sorts of different um, diverse ages of, of, of the forest. So they'd have meadows, they'd have early succession forests where, you know, they'd have young deciduous trees like uh, aspen or um, willows or uh, poplars that, that would come in there. And then they'd also have old growth forests where they would have like these older, really mature spruce pine um, trees because what you needed basically was to have kind of a garden around your house, right? You didn't want to have everything the same. Like you didn't just want to have a garden of carrots around, you know, beside your house, right? You want to have a diversity of things that, that you can harvest and live off of. And so again, the beauty of that with fire is that when the lightning fires or the summer fires would come or, you know, before green up in Alberta, so before our trees would leaf out when it's really dangerous for fires because it's so dry, the fires would hit and run into these mosaics and change in intensity um, and, and severity of what they were burning. And so with, you know, in Canada, when settlers came, they brought with them fire exclusion. And so since that's come, uh, we've had uh, our forests basically have almost turned into like monocultures. Like they're not exactly like that, but that's the easiest way to describe them. And a lot of that is like with timber companies, right? Because there's certain types of trees and ages of trees that are of value to them. So those are the trees that are promoted. But those are also the trees that, you know, carry fire. And so um, like in the mountains, when you go to a lookout site and you look and, and you see like that, um, blanket of green that all looks the same and people right now really think that that's beautiful and natural but that's not natural in in the boreal forest and so what we want to see is these patchworks because when you have that you know carpet of the same type of trees disturbance can run through it so you can get pest attacks fire is really um, bad and negative uh, to those areas it provides this picture of how diversity is important because nature is complicated, because the web of life is so complex. Mm -hmm. um, and it gives a whole new meaning to like sustainable resource management. Like it's, it's a, a far more, mm -hmm. I guess, holistic picture. And I really want to learn more, you know, I want, I want more people to know about your, your sort of research in indigenous fire stewardship. And especially, I guess, its role at a time where we need to move in the direction of decolonization and remediation globally. Um, I mean, you note in one piece that, quote, there's not an ecosystem in North America that was untouched by indigenous cultural burning practices, and that the removal of indigenous fire practices from the land has increased fire risk in many areas with frequent low-risk, small-scale burns replaced by infrequent, large, dangerous wildfire events. So I wondered, you know, if you could speak to or just expand on what you were saying uh, just a minute ago by talking about how maybe Indigenous fire stewardship could be related to this now kind of more mainstream, I guess, concept of climate adaptation. I mean, what is the history of Indigenous fire stewardship or histories of Indigenous fire stewardship? Um, and, and how is it both used and experienced by indigenous aboriginal and tribal peoples who have sought to learn to live with fire so i will say that there is controversy in like the science community right about the extensiveness mm. of indigenous fire use 
I know I've been on talks lately or calls lately where people will say like, you know, oh, there was no indigenous burning in like the northeastern US or something like that. Um, but I think uh, what's important to point out is that when you actually go and talk to indigenous people, they remember like the elders remember times of using fire. And, you know, what when they say that there's been no fire, usually what they're looking at is like either tree rings, which I spoke about earlier, or like looking at charcoal or things like that. So like, you know, going to a lake and seeing, you know, is there charcoal sediment in the lake um, historically? And then, you know, what does that mean for, you know, if there was fire in the area or, you know, they'll look at pollen too and, and, and other indicators of fire. But um, I think like what's really important to point out for indigenous cultural fire is that all the nations that I've worked with, you know, talk about how small scale the fires are often. So, you know, it's not like now with what when agencies do prescribe fire where we're burning like massive amounts of territory or anything. Like really sometimes um, indigenous cultural fires can be like a bush that you're burning, you know, be so that that bush comes back healthier and produces better berries. It can be like, you know, the size of your house where maybe you just want to bring up some green grass so that some deer will come to that area. Or it can be much larger and more landscape level. But I think that that's important to point out is that diversity of it. And really, when we go to communities, um, yeah, they talk about fire and, and using fire um, in, in different ways. And I think like that Northeast uh, US piece that, that people really kind of still debate about, um, that my colleagues that I've worked with from there, from Indigenous nations, really dispute that. You know, and they, yeah, their their stories and their history is that they use fire on the landscape there too. I wanted to ask you about how you you sort of discuss. Like I noticed in in recent lectures, you discuss how meaningful it's been for you to speak directly with indigenous fire knowledge holders. Um, it's also something you write about that these these are elders who are familiar with, as you say, climatic cycles and ignition sources, fire behavior, and landscape factors. You know, I, I, I want to ask, I guess, whether, you know, whether you'd be open to giving listeners a sense of why the insights of Indigenous fire knowledge holders are so valuable to you and, you know, maybe the barriers that you've seen emerge that stand in the way of that knowledge being transmitted in any sort of like cross-cultural way. Sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, part of the thing that's influencing some of this discussion, like, you know, about, um, you know, Indigenous people maybe not burning in certain areas. Like I've encountered that too from communities when I've gone to talk to them. And I mean, what we have to remember is that burning was criminalized. And so when you go to communities, they speak about, you know, really heavy fines being levied on them, you know, people being imprisoned for uh, burning. And I mean, even in, in um, California, I've heard of people like die, um, being killed because of burning. And so it's, you know, it's something that like when you go to a community, they're not just going to open up and say like, oh, yeah, we burn all the time here. Or like, you know, we did that because it's seen as a, a criminal offense in Canada. So the real important thing, you know, is about, you know, building those trusted relationships and really looking at fire in a different way. Um, so even when I did my Ph.D., I went to a, a Métis settlement. So my family is Métis. I'm from the Cardinal and Labakan families. And um, I went to Peavine Métis settlement where I'm related to a bunch of different folks there. But 
when I first got there and people didn't know me that well, like nobody burned, like everybody would just say, you know, that, oh no, they didn't do that. And they were all about, you know, firefighting and that fire was bad. And as I got to know more people in the community, they found out we were related and that, you know, I wasn't there to arrest them or something. All the stories came out about the importance of fire and using fire to clean the land and, you know, mm -hmm. the role of good fire and how they'd burn and where they'd burn. And, you know, so I think that that's one thing really that we need to, to remember about fire is that for Indigenous nations, there's a long history of distrust um, around fire with like outside um, outside people, outside agencies, outside folks. Uh, there's also right now a worry about like appropriation of fire knowledge. So where people come in and basically steal fire knowledge from nations so that um, the nations still aren't able to burn themselves, but other people will kind of take their knowledge and go and, and burn in their place which I think is a real concern. But for me, like, I think too, with climate change, like when I go to communities, they talk a lot about like their worries about climate change, first of all, and not from like a political standpoint or, you know, because they read a study that like, you know, showed a graph of ocean temperature, but like, they're just looking at the land around them and just seeing the change. And so that's their concern, right? It's based on their personal observation. And in Northern Canada, especially like communities there are feeling the impacts of climate change much, much earlier. Um, and so, yeah, what's happening there is that the cycle, like, so basically the timing of things is shifted. And so one of the issues that with wildfire management right now is that everything's based on like dates, you know, like on, on April 1st, they'll release you know, uh, okay, it's the start of fire season, the fire bans coming on or whatever. But for Indigenous people, like their burning calendar has never been around like fixed dates. It's always around like observations that you can see. And so for me as like a climate adaptation strategy, that that helps, right? Because you're not saying like, oh my goodness, now like, you know, it's there's um, no snow on March 15th. So what are we gonna do? they rather look at it and just say like, okay, the time to burn, you know, is now. So let's go and burn. Um, and I, I think too, from a climate change adaptation piece, another thing that's important is that, well, cultural burning is mostly done for cultural reasons. Uh, so like, you know, so basically that people can live and carry out their cultural activities on that landscape. A, a benefit of, of fire is that it also removes um, vegetation right that's available to burn in an out of control fire event so it basically as i was saying cleans things up like every nation i go to that's what i hear is that fire is used for cleaning so it when you know now when you walk through a forest lots of times it's actually really difficult to walk if you walk off trail because it's you know there's so many like down logs and branches and like leaf litter and all these things and so what would happen with indigenous nations is they would go and clean that up with fire. So they'd go and set a fire at the right time, which would then burn all of that. And it basically produces like biochar, like charcoal that basically returns nutrients to the ground. But then it removes the fuel that would be available if that area was hit, you know, by lightning uh, fire during the summer. In that way, it really helps to adapt communities to this increasing wildfire risk that we're seeing just by like a really simple practice, which is removing things there that are available to burn um, if something like that happened. Um, I wanna ask you more about that, but I guess like 
because I don't think it's particularly well understood either. Like you're offering this context on the history of fire suppression in Canada as like a colonial kind of capitalist practice. Um, and like you say that um, in one piece that, you know, the, this policy of fire suppression started as early as 1610 um, in the Maritimes, I, I think. What, mm -hmm. what are like, just for people's clarity, like what are, were the reasons for making the suppression of fire a matter of law? In Canada like who does it serve? Yeah so you know I think what's important you know here is that when Europeans were coming to Canada and settling Canada they brought with them like you know your ideas of like the European forest and so what was you know common there and so I think you know there was a lot of agriculture burning and stuff and I always get that from people like you know well Europeans burn too but you're, it was mostly burning for monoculture. So, you know, like burning for a crop or burning for grazing or, or, you know, burning for land clearing. It wasn't burning for biodiversity in the forest. And so that's more what was happening in North America, you know, from what we're learning from, from nations. And so when Europeans came over, you know, during these hot summer days, they would just, you know, smell smoke, see smoke, like, they, they would go to these devastated or what they would call devastated areas and see, you know, like um, that, you know, what would have been used as like, you know, timber for building homes or, you know, for heating your um, or heating your home or cooking or things like that were just getting annihilated by these fires. Right. And so um, what they saw was like a major loss of resources. And what they didn't realize was that the boreal forest is so much different because it needs that fire and that, you know, disturbance in order to be healthy. So, I mean, I guess like I can, I can understand, you know, like if you're going to a new place and your mindset is that fire is bad. And like, and I think too, at that time, like in Scandinavia, they had um, like really strict forest laws there. And so uh, in an article by Bell that was actually written in 1888 about fires in um, Northern uh, Canada, he talks there about like how we should be putting Scandinavian fire policy into Canada, um, which is basically, you know, using guardians and patrolmen to go around and fine or imprison people for starting fires because of the importance of protecting the, the timber reserve. Um, and he does some calculations in there too about, you know, how much money basically the Canadian forest is worth if you looked at it from a European perspective of harvesting. And so timber companies too, you know, were, didn't want obviously their, what they were reliant on for their incomes to burn as well. So at, at first, you know, it, it was fine when they came and they would, you know, put in these fire exclusion things. And even when indigenous people would burn too, they just saw that as being so dangerous, even though they had really no understanding of what was happening at the time and why it was done. It was that whole, you know, superiority, superiority of knowledge. Uh, when they came and um, even in that Bell article, like, you know, he talks about like the the uncivilized uh, people, like the the wild Indian of the Canadian North, <laughs> you know, and, and doesn't see that maybe those people actually knew what they were doing um, to be able to survive on that landscape. And so as like the settlers moved across Canada, of course, with that came these fire exclusion policies and you know, these um, forest rangers or guardians who would go out and patrol the forest. And and then, you know, in Canada, too, we got really successful at putting out fires, you know, especially in like the, um, 
probably like the 1970s and 80s, I guess, was kind of like the heyday of putting out fires. But that was when, you know, it was pretty easy. They could just go and, and put out a fire on the landscape and, um, you know, and, and they didn't really think what the implications of that were of removing fire and, and removing that disturbance. Um, and I mean, that's what we're seeing now is now we're seeing the implications of these forest management choices. Um, and so now what we're seeing is, you know, even more areas burning fires that are impossible to put out as they move across the landscape. Yeah. And that, you know, brings us to the inescapable problem, right, that we now face, um, that these extreme wildfire wildfire events are becoming more and more common. You spell this out in stark detail. You write, the 2018 campfire in Northern California showed extreme fire behavior and burned approximately 62,000 acres or hectares. In Australia, the 2019 to 2020 fire season, referred to as mm -hmm. the Black Summer fires, burned an unimaginable 18.6 million hectares in Australia's warmest year on record. We're also seeing extreme wildfires in weird places like the Brazilian rainforest, the Arctic Circle, and here in Nova Scotia. Um, you know, when like wildfires now account for a huge percentage of carbon emissions. I mean, new scientists reported that countrywide fires in Canada produce 55 million tons of CO2 in May alone, more than double the carbon emitted by wildfires in any May fire season. So it's just like, it's hard to imagine a way out of this. And I know that I read that you and your family kept trapping lines near Fort McMurray in Northern Alberta, but left because like the tar sands complex was contaminating and dominating the landscape, people are trying to flee the impacts of like fossil fuel infrastructure, oil and gas development, but it's becoming harder and harder to escape. There is basically no escaping climate change. And so, you know, um, I don't even know how to ask the question, but <laughs> you know, how do we argue for sustainable resource resource management now what does a radical approach to sustainable resource management look like um in light of these changes in historical fire behavior and fire regimes in all of these different areas yeah so i think you know with this fire season too i've been feeling depressed like that too like you know how are we going to get out of this but i think for me one thing that's really come through is that like, I think the public, you know, there's so many things going on in a person's day to day life, right? And so, you know, if you're living in a city like forest health or like, you know, wildfires probably isn't top of your priority list for like, you know, things that you're gonna, um, you know, raise your voice about, I guess. Uh, but I think what's happened is that, you know, after like at first in Canada, like I was doing this kind of well, I, I would say like academically alone for like 10 years, um, you know, there was obviously communities and nations um, doing this work and advocating it, but um, there wasn't much, much attention, I guess, even from wildfire agencies about what was, um, you know, about cultural fire and, and what it could do for climate change adaptation and making communities safer. But when um, 20, like when we had the 2017 and 2018 fires in British Columbia and the fire in Fort McMurray in 2016 as well, that really caught the attention of a lot of people because a lot were now being impacted by fires that maybe previously wouldn't have been. And I think that we're in the same place this year, you know, that oh, like tons of Canadians, tons of people in the Northeastern US, you know, have been 
um, smoked out. And I think that's one thing about fires too, is that, you know, the impact, like a flooding event or something isn't just localized, like because fire smoke can travel so far, um, you can really be, you know, hundreds of kilometers from a fire and still be very heavily impacted by it. And I think for me, what I've seen is, is a real um, interest in Indigenous practices, you know, and looking at different types of management systems and like how we can can move on these things. And so for me, it's like tragic in a way that like, you know, when set, like when settlers first came 200 or what, like, you know, and started really implementing their policies about 200 years ago in Canada, like that they didn't listen then and are like, you know, now after this long of mistakes, um, you know, listening. And so that's like, that's very depressing. I won't lie about that, but it's, I think I, I am ha like happy now to see more of an interest in this area. And there's some really hopeful signs I see in, um, in terms of like uh, guardian programs, like in Canada, there's been large commitments for funding um, land guardian programs. And we're hoping that we can get fire incorporated into those as well, where people are really out on the land like year after year, um, putting these practices in, into place. And so, yeah, I think like I do get depressed about like the, the emissions. And I think that right now, you know, it's we're unfortunately entering this really negative loop where, you know, it's hot, dry. So more is burning, which is producing more carbon. Um, and then uh, because of that, also, we're getting like uh, more lightning, which is producing more fires as well. So there's all sorts of research just pointing to like, you know, this feedback circle where things are just going to start accelerating but i don't know i try to be like hopeful and to look at like these small pockets of like resistance and change and one thing like on our land like we burn um and we ha we don't burn as much as we should because we have two really young kids that do not like fire <laughs> or like you know sitting there while we're burning because it's not like a super exciting adrenaline pumping practice right like cultural fire is slow and it's like, you know, walking with the fire along the landscape. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's just, for me, it's a calming thing, right? Getting out there and doing it. But yeah, for like a seven-year-old, it's less than exciting. <laughs> um, but anyways, we, uh, we're, when we're out there burning, like I just went out there last week to the area that we burn this spring and you can just see the health of the land. And there were like butterflies everywhere and like, uh, pollinators and other things and it was just like so neat to just and I just imagine like if we had that you know in, internationally where we had indigenous people like managing small areas of land and um, there's lots of research that's come out about how indigenous people like in lands that that we manage increase the biodiversity sub substantially and I hope too like with these cons like in terms of the emissions you know that I think more and more people are talking about like you know greener energy and um in especially even where i live like i live in rocky mountain house which is probably like a very very conservative part of canada um that's very pro oil and gas uh but even in recent years like the vote for like green party or like ndp has increased substantially and then the uh there's people now that have like solar panel houses we see electric cars driving around town and stuff so hmm. i don't know i'm hopeful that way but for me what's really sad is that it's taken these big like events that have impacted millions of people to hmm. kind of get people thinking of, of living more sustainably yeah i mean that's my feeling as well um that 
you know, it, in Nova Scotia, it seems to have taken people witnessing something they had never seen before to move in that direction. Yeah. But it is obviously a warning sign and a wake up call. And I like that you sort of pair that in your your thinking and your approach to the crisis by, you know, focusing on like joy, these moments of joy and peace and togetherness, you know, like um, you obviously like leave room for those those important emotions. Um, and I think like that is ultimately what drives people. It's not so much the fear because the fear is is it can be immobilizing. Um, mm -hmm. it is, it is how you translate that wake up call into something like action. And, and so the, the massive plumes of smoke, um, are, are a wake up call as they drift across the country and down into the United States. But there's weird wake up calls that accompany that, like certain whole areas of California being uninsurable, right? Like these are like yeah. economic realities mm -hmm. that are also, also sobering. And one of the things you're really clear on is that it's hard to communicate the real economic cost of wildfires, these massive extreme climate events. So maybe it's more important to just try and be forward thinking in response to that reality. Like there is this idea in your work that a wildfire provides a, an opportunity for residents of an area to like implement if, if we can't, you know, like immediately stop what's coming, like at least adapt in ways that it, when we're rebuilding that, you know, develop resilience, right? Um, and yet, you know, to do that effectively, and, and I think we're facing that in Nova Scotia, you have to counteract a powerful desire to return to normal as quickly as mm -hmm. possible. Um, and, and so yeah, we can't miss these opportunities, but that means trying to convince people to like resist that maybe normal desire to return to normal, even if it's not, not working. Um, do you have any sense of like, yeah, I don't know the magic answer of how do you reach down to the roots of that problem to problematize something like land use planning and building design. I mean, you talk about how that's often considered the most significant power granted to local governments, and yet it's somehow also one of the least adopted community wildfire mitigation measures. So how do you think we pull in that direction and what stands in the way of like more serious and forward thinking land use planning and resilient building design? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And, you know, I don't, I wish that I had a, a great answer for it. I think, like you said, I, I think that what's really gonna push in this area, like I wish it was out of the goodness of people's hearts and, you know, just realizing that this isn't a, a good way to live. Like for the Fort McMurray fire, for example, you know, once that fire went through, um, and we have lots of other research in Canada that shows like that people just want that return to normal after. So like, you know, they think that, okay, well now the fires come through, we're safe. Or they think like the other perspective that we often hear is like people that were so like frightened by the fire, they'll just say, you know, like, well, I saw it and my home burnt and there's nothing I can do. Like, so a total fatalistic approach as well. But I, so I honestly think that what will happen is probably have to happen is like this kind of monetary impact and a lot will be related to insurance. Uh, and so I think, you know, in California, you know, unfortunately in many ways, California is leading in some of these areas. Um, like they've just been instituting new laws about cultural fire and, and prescribed fire. Um, but then also with this big insurance change there, and we'll see what the implications of that are for local governments, because, you know, it's going to, really impact home prices and other things and then you know the taxes that they're taking in 
when homes basically aren't insurable um, and, you know, are in very high wildfire risk areas. So, yeah, I wish it didn't take that. But I think that, you know, it's probably like from what we've seen, we've done studies on, you know, motivation for change. And even in Fort Mac, you know, we were looking at, um, you know, were people rebuilding um, fire smart, like after that the fire had gone through. And what we heard for a lot of people is that, you know, some were a little bit, but not a lot because it was mostly related to cost. So like, why would you put like heart, like spend part of your insurance settlement from your home burning on like hardy board siding for your housing in a metal roof when you could like instead just put on vinyl siding and shingles and then have like you know granite countertops in your kitchen you know and or like a real a much more fancier kitchen or interior of your home uh and so i think yeah unfortunately until things like that change but again i think these extreme events are, are pushing that way like we've seen it this year we've already had lots of um Whole, lots of homes and structures in Canada with this fire season and I mean we're only like in June right so um, lots of the home loss especially in BC um, has occurred historically in July and August and September um, is really when their fire season picks up there. Um, I um, yeah I mean there is this problem Mike Davis has a book um, called The Ecology of Fear which is about, you know, in part wildfire in California. There's this chapter that has the really striking title, The Case for Letting Malibu Burn, um, in, in which he does say, like, um, you know, total fire suppression is scientifically discredited and, and prescribed burning is clearly the way forward. Um, and also that, you know, in California, each new uh, conflagration prompts larger and more exclusive development and a relaxing of the fire code rather than forward thinking reforms. Um, so he's really, you know, problematizing that and, and talking about how like the way that um, people have to fight fires is now really hampered by the, the wildland urban interface and like having to work around these incredibly explosive homes. So, um, mm -hmm. but like these sorts of property-based barriers are different in First Nations and Métis settlements, right? Like the settlement owns all land and homes in the community. So like, if I'm understanding it correctly, it's it's kind of fundamentally different. I don't know if that's reductionist, but like these are settlements that are, are also at the same time, I guess, responsible for ensuring the contents of homes. And I don't know, I mean, this question is kind of unclear. I'm just still trying to understand the, the kind of structure of that in a sense and what uh, challenges it poses. I don't know if you could speak to that. Yeah, it's super confusing. And I think like I've even been in this area for like, you know, 15, 20 years looking at, you know, uh, wildfire risk to settlements, reserves. And it, yeah, it's still incredibly confusing about, you know, who owns what, <clears throat> excuse me, who's responsible for what. And so like for the settlements, like they are kind of more communally owned. Um, so people don't necessarily have like individual home ownership um like you would see like in, in a normal community and same with the reserves so but then at the same time like when homes burn say on a reserve it's basically like indigenous services canada or the federal government then that has to step up and like replace those homes and there's already such like a housing crisis on reserves and settlements with you know there's already not enough money being provided for housing there's already overcrowded homes so that when you have a wildfire or something coming in, like it, 
it makes it even worse. And so for people like, you know, say if I'm living in a home on reserve that was like assigned to me by my my band, because you don't directly benefit from anything that happens to that home. So for example, if I was to put like, you know, upgrade the outside of the home or something like that, it's it doesn't financially benefit me at all. It's basically like me just kind of throwing money in, into a hole almost. And it's a bit the same with insurance, right? So in the insurance, like if you wanted to get insurance on your home, it's just so expensive. And the CBC, I think, just had a really good article on um, like insurance on reserves. And people in that article were talking about just, you know, the um, monthly um, charges are just so expensive because they're, you know, first of all, they don't own the home. They're like so far from, you know, fire stations. Usually the 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 premiums or whatever are so much for people. And already like we have for First Nations, like, you know, according to the census, they have a much lower annual income than like a non-Indigenous community. So, you know, there's not, you know, <clears throat> a lot of money basically to to put towards home insurance there. And mm-hmm. so I think like the thing that also really concerns me is that uh, like you were talking about Malibu, I, I was reading there about like last fire season, how there were the wealthy people there were basically hiring their own like wildland fire fighters um, to come wow. in and protect their homes, you know, putting sprinklers <sighs> on. And so, yeah, what concerns me about that is that, you know, it's like with climate change, the people that it's going to hit hardest are the most vulnerable. And so I think yeah. that, you know, that's what we're going to we, we see in, in um, Canada. We have uh, about, I think, in our last study that, that we did, about 60% of reserves in Canada are either loca- located within um, or, uh, or um, interface with, with the uh, wildland urban interface. So, you know, the area where, um, you know, it, it's much higher risk to fire. And many are also in, like, northern locations, um, you know, in that boreal forest that's really prone to burn. Many are remote. And so... Uh, the vulnerability of the the communities is just huge, and especially when mm-hmm. Indigenous nations right now aren't allowed to use their own knowledge to modify that landscape around them. Mm-hmm. Like aren't allowed. This is the thing, and so you know your your work is all about like empowering um, communities to to you know yeah like uh, assert a level of like sovereignty and and uh, self determination. Like you've written this really remarkable resource called First Nations Wildfire Evacuations um, that's pretty singular. And I wanted to ask you about the kind of motivation for producing that. There is like a particular vulnerability to wildfires on First Nations reserves, but there is also, you say in in that text, an inherent right to protect territory and community, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you kind of, how did you kind of balance those two things in writing this resource? Yeah, sure. So I think one important thing to to just point out to your listeners is that Indigenous people in Canada make up about 5% of the Canadian population. And there's probably even less that are actually living, um, like status First Nation living on reserve, maybe like about 2% of the Canadian population or something. Yet it's a 42% of evacuation events are of reserves in Canada. So it's really high, like um, just that disproportionate impact on communities. And so I think for me, like when I started in this, you know, we were seeing like just this impact on Indigenous communities. It seemed like every evacuation story was of 
indigenous peoples. And even during that time too, I think Tara and I both started noticing some of like the, basically the articles and things that were coming out and even things that we heard in meetings with agencies and stuff was quite racist to be a hundred percent honest of, you know, we heard one case where a community was, uh, a first nation community was evacuated to a hotel, but then when a nearby non-indigenous community was evacuated, all those um, indigenous people got kicked out of the hotel to make room for the non-indigenous people. And a lot of that has to do with like jurisdiction and who's funding evacuation. So in Canada, um, emergency management, fire management, forest management are all um, provincial jurisdiction. So through that natural resource transfer um, agreement that was in the 1930s, it basically shifted responsibility to the provinces. But First Nations people and reserves are still under federal jurisdiction. So when communities are evacuated, there's just so many more complications that come in into play. And the um, federal government sometimes has agreements with like the local provincial agencies to basically handle um, the evacuations and then they'll be reimbursed. But it's really confusing for people like, you know, that are actually being evacuated in that moment for chief and councils to know what to do. And I think like in, in recent years, it has improved a little bit, but even this summer, like we still see all these like issues. And so for me, it's been discouraging because it seems like every year it's just the same problems that we're having. But um, so during when we started the First Nation Wildfire Evacuation Partnership, what Taryn and I and a colleagues had noticed was that we didn't really know what Indigenous people were going through when they were evacuated. So we heard all these agency perspectives, you know, that the communities were difficult to deal with, you know, there was all sorts of like problems in like the evacuation centers that, you know, it was hard to get people to listen to the orders to leave, um, you know, everyone was defying them and staying behind. And so, but we were wondering like what was actually going on in communities, you know, that were being affected by fire. So we partnered with seven different First Nations across Canada that had experienced fire and went and spoke to over 200 uh, wildfire evacuees just to get like the stories of of what was happening. And so, for example, one is like um, Stanley Mission, which was uh, in Lac La Ronge Indian Band, so in northern Saskatchewan. And when they were evacuated, like um, the band, the local nation actually handled things pretty well. But the problems all started when other external agencies started coming into the picture. And the one I remember vividly was because I had a baby at that time was that there was one mom who um, they wouldn't allow her to bring her car seat on the evacuation bus or like any way to to hold her baby um, and she didn't have her own transport so what she ended up doing was holding the baby on like a 10-hour bus ride from their community I think all the way down to Regina um, where the evacuation center was and so you know it, it's things like that you know that we would probably never um put on non-indigenous people in canada like right. and we just had tons and tons of stories of that and another one was like deer lake first nation when they were evacuated in ontario they were actually evacuated to a an abandoned sanatorium like a, a mental health hospital that um had you know hadn't been used and they were put up there and you know it was just horrible um place to put people and sure. you know but that was just deemed as acceptable no i mean it just sounds like a policy of inconsideration that definitely like smacks of racism 
um, it's hard to read it any other way when you're starting to see a pattern in, as it were, the data of people's experiences. Um, yep. uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think too, like when uh, just another important thing to point out is that many of these communities that evacuate, it's not like you can just like jump in your car. Like, you know, for me, if we got an evacuation order here, like we have two vehicles, we could just put some stuff in them. And then we have multiple highway um, access to our place. So, you know, mm -hmm. we could go north, south, east, west, like um, anywhere basically to get away from the fire. But for lots of these communities, they're either one road access or they're fly in only. Um, mm -hmm. And so they're really relying. And then also too, another thing we heard was that you know, they might have 16 people living in their home, but one car. So it's not like it's easy just to, you know, pack everybody in and, and take off. And so what happens there is that they become really reliant on external agencies. But because there's already this massive distrust, um, because they're not allowed to manage their territories, there's all of these other issues in communities, um, you know, and like water, childcare, all these things like that the colonial government is basically, you know, not producing properly on that mm -hmm. then you know it's kind of like this just total lack of trust like you know well how are they going to help us and lots of times there's even a reluctance to speak out um you know it's just kind of like well let's just get out of the community and just you know they, yeah so i think that that's one really important thing that the book has done is just really captured those stories of people and every participant that we talked to one of the big things they said was that you know, we had lots of people crying, even like four years after their evacuation experiences, um, just about the impact that it had on them. But they all wanted to do the interview because they said, first, no one had ever asked them what had mm -hmm. happened to them. And then the second thing was that they wanted to make it better for other people in the future. It It is too, it, it's easy and the knee-jerk response tends to be in mainstream media to sort of obviously like amplify the stories of like heroism um and and that's great and we don't want to dwell with these um you know more like troubling truths but if you dwell with those troubling truths you learn a lot more i think and and you know like you're talking about how you're talking about communities where people are evacuated multiple times per year like often because of air quality issues not even just direct exposure to like oncoming wildfire I thought your analysis yeah. of the evacuation of Fort McMurray was really interesting in this uh, in this sense because you know when I spoke to John Valiant right who has this book Fire Weather which really centers on that massive fire he mostly talks about the scale and the speed of that evacuation but mm -hmm. you point out like there were serious impediments to getting people out of that municipality access roads out of the neighborhoods. Um, the timing of the mandatory evacuation order. He does talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, so like municipalities need to learn from um, when they get caught off guard, when they, you know, when things could have gone very, very badly. And and you would hope that people are. Um, and so I think, yeah, like these conversations that you're having are really vital. I wanted to talk about your incredible podcast, Good Fire, um, where people can, you know, uh, um, get a really kind of like accessible, often innovative, hopeful, eloquent uh, encounter with, you know, uh, uh, people who are thinking along along the lines of uh, preserving cultural fire, you know, talking about fire and cultural transmission and how, you know, uh, as I think uh, Biami Williamson says, that transmission takes place in tangible, practical and embodied ways. But I guess like, 
you're sharing all of this information. You're doing so with this like spirit of of wanting to, let's say, build back better or at least preserve what what all that we can save. But you also mention in the second of the two uh, Don Hankins episodes that you know there occasionally you'll record parts of conversations that you're not comfortable sharing. So you know I just wondered if you could. Talk about that maybe in relationship to this like horizon of possibility where something like cross-cultural fire, fire stewardship is conceivable. Sure. Yeah. So I think that's one thing with that podcast that everyone just thinks like we kind of hit play and record it <laughs> and that's the end. But those podcasts are heavily edited um, mm -hmm. because there is things that people aren't comfortable sharing publicly. And a lot of that is just because that appropriation of knowledge that um, has occurred historically to Indigenous peoples. And so they want, you know, to, to protect their knowledge. And, and that's rightfully so. So for that podcast, we try to speak in much more general terms. Um, but sometimes when we get into like ceremonial things or talking about locations or like um, actual practices of burning, um, we take those out just because of the worry. And so one example of that is like, um, you know, there's an elder that I that I know who's like a fire keeper, you know, has years and years of, of experience in or decades, I should say, of experience in, in firefighting, but also in fire lighting. And um, he's often like asked to come in and like speak to agencies, you know, to kind of, you know, give an overview of cultural fire to talk about some of the practices and other things. So He's basically there teaching the agency who then relies on that teaching to go out and let their people burn. But he's still not allowed to burn, like even as the teacher. So to me, that's just so like unfair. And I think so I, I tend to be like, I guess, a bit more radical in my thinking in this because we hear a lot about like the weaving of knowledge and, you know, incorporation of Indigenous knowledge into Western fire practices. And at first, I was really supportive of that until I've actually seen like what that means on the ground. And to me, it's not it hasn't been true weaving or whatever. It's really been a question again of appropriation. And so it for me has come down to like more of a social justice issue where like, you know, indigenous people in Canada were the ones burning, were the ones using fire, had that taken away from them. Um, and so now that we want to return to fire, like the just thing to do would be to empower Indigenous people to do that and to be able to carry out that obligation, that responsibility that they have to the land um, and not just to be, you know, teaching other people to be able to do it. And so for me, until I can see that happening, like I'm a little bit more reluctant, um, you know, about this interweaving or, or sharing um, or like a cross-cultural Thing. And so I think like an example of that in practice is like in Parks Canada. So I'm currently working here as an Indigenous fire specialist for the National Fire Management Division. And what we've done here is that we've really been um, explicit about a separating per agency prescribed fire. So, you know, the practices that we often see from cult Indigenous led cultural fire practices. So lots of times you'll see those two terms conflated, but here we are, they're totally distinct. And it's one of the reasons why I came here because I, I really like that, that approach to it. And so for like agency prescribed fire, that's, you know, where we're seeing like, it's based on agency objectives where they're going out and burning like a lot of land in a little bit of time. So we call that production burning where, 
you know, it's because of resources and they don't want to spend any more money than they have to and stuff. They're, you know, they're trying to do as much as possible. Um, it's basically, um, you know, it's a paramilitary structure where, you know, you've got people in an incident command system that have their specific roles. Um, you lots of times they're using like uh, foreign um, ignition techniques. So like using heli torches or drip torches or ping pong balls to, you know, get the fire going. And so that's really different than indigenous led cultural fire practices, which are family centered, which are nation centered, where we have, you know, children and elders out on the land where lots of times because the fire is so low risk, like nobody wears any PPE, like there's no kind of special requirements to be able to be on, on the fire. Um, we use like more like a slower burning technique. So it's hard to, for agencies probably to imagine that because it takes a long time to burn a little bit, but it's because of that close relationship to the land and that, you know, you're seeing on the ground as you're slowly burning, like what's happening. So you know when it's time to keep burning or, or not to burn. And then also the the one thing is that there's a bit of like controversy about um, using uh, foreign fire starting methods right now, like drip torches, because so many of our indigenous people are wildland firefighters. So they have experience running drip torch, but lots of our elders think that, you know, because a drip torch uses fuel, so it uses like diesel and gas that you're basically dripping onto the ground, that that's introducing like foreign toxins basically to the landscape. Um, and so that it's much more important to use traditional um, fire starting methods. So yeah, I think for me, like that, I personally feel that we need to, you know, as you said, empower indigenous people to be able to lead these practices on their own territories first. And then we can kind of see as, as we move, because, you know, we need to manage a lot of land, right, or steward a lot of land. So we're going to need a lot of people. And I think out of California, there's a really good quote. I can't remember who said it, but it was like, you know, it gets overwhelming if you think like we have to burn a million hectares a year. But if you think that you have a million people burning one hectare a year, things become much more manageable. And so for me, like, I just feel like let's start with the people who fire was taken away from. Um, who have that knowledge to go back to their land. Yeah, I mean, I this is why I really wanted to talk to you. I, I think you've got um, some really revolutionary, but also just like incredibly sensible, practical ideas that are obviously very deserving of being shared. And like what you just said communicates the fact that like this is urgent stuff. Like as as others have pointed out, Climate change may make indigenous peoples climate refugees in their own ancestral territories. So, you know, maybe some sort of relationship is necessary, especially when, you know, changes affect treaty rights, tribal lands and resources that are held sort of in trust. But like that relationship is hard to create because of significant differences in worldview that need to be respected. Um, and so, you know, that that just makes it more difficult work. It doesn't make it less urgent, but it makes it more difficult. And I wondered if you could maybe, like I was, you know, reading, uh, reading about your, the, the work that you've done. And I noticed that um, there's a New Yorker article by Bill McKibben from last year that's titled, In a World on Fire, Stop Burning Things, that actually <laughs> ends, ends with a reference to your work. Um, and, you know, McKibben, McKibben obviously is like 
an ally, let's say, and and believes in the need to embrace limits and and go in a different direction, a radically different direction. But he writes in that article, quote, it's possible to imagine a world in which we've turned off most of the man-made fires and indigenous people teach the rest of us to use fire as the important force it was when we first discovered it. And, you know, I just wonder how you feel about that kind of framing and whether you think it adequately does the work of, of trying to restore like that self-determination that is obviously really crucial when, when we're talking about um, the need to decolonize wildland fire management. Yeah, I, I get sentiments like that quite a bit from people. So even with the podcast, like one thing I was really naive when we started it, um, and I tried to correct for season two of that podcast, was that people would then just like call me or email me and say, you know, like, I want to learn your ways. And it was like, that's like not the point of, of it, right? Is that for me, it's like, you know, um, empowering local. So what I've been saying, like, because I get the constant question now, like, well, you know, I'm an ally, you know, what can I do to help? Like, if you don't want me to like go to a community and learn their practice, like, how can I assist? And for, for me, one of the reasons I'm like opinionated about that is because I think like many Indigenous people, myself included, did get a chance to learn from our elders because of colonization. So if there's opportunities to learn from elders, it should be Indigenous people that are able to, to access those opportunities first. And so I worry, you know, that we'd have a cultural fire camp that would have like 90% allies and maybe 10% Indigenous uh, people there. So I think that, that one thing that I'm always talking about is that, you know, for allies, a really important way to help is to help to take down these systems that they basically, well, not they personally, but like that, you know, colonial <laughs> governments have put in place. So, you know, to help, like start looking at, you know, um, policy around fire, to start looking at legislation around fire um, and, and to really start pushing on, on those things and, and how we can change those to open space for Indigenous uh, peoples and another thing that I've really been I've heard like quite a bit from Prince Albert Grand Council and Senator Beatty lately up there is that you know fire also comes down to a treaty rights thing so like in treaty when we sign like multiple different treaties with the government of Canada and my family from PAC's band was <clears throat> signatories on treaty six and so when those treaties were signed, basically the right to be able to hunt and fish and continue to carry out our cultural activities on our land was basically um, guaranteed to us by the government of Canada and so, or the Dominion of Canada, I guess, at that time. So what, what we've seen with these fires is that it's impacting our ability to actually um, be able to do that on our land. So it's infringing upon our treaty rights. And so one way that people want to move is to you know basically reinforce that treaty relationship that we have with the government of Canada um, to basically that so that we can go out on our land and do those activities and if that takes indigenous stewardship of the land and a movement away from you know um, provincial or territorial territorial management then you know that's what's going to need to happen to be able to uphold our treaty rights yeah and and thank you so much for you know making that clear that this is not just theoretical this is like tangible this is practical um and and a question of how you know power structures and anti-fire discourses let's say have really you know changed um the landscape 
uh, have changed, uh, you know, our relationship to the land, have, have you know, limited uh, the flourishing, clearly, of indigenous peoples in, in many contexts and have really like imperiled the world like it's not an it's not an exaggeration to say that um so it's it's a it's a you know pleasure and an honor to be able to talk to you about these things yeah thank you so much for having me on